All right, number 12. We're going to start out with some interesting tidbits. We're going to go back in time to Vail, Colorado, 2001. Quite an interesting era that doesn't get talked about much. I can imagine why, I guess, after some research, um, some stuff about Mavic being back in the U.S. And we've got a couple races coming up, uh, one in just a few days, so we'll talk about that and a couple other little things. So here we go, number 12, Short Travel. This is Short Travel Magazine. Interesting tidbits, curated just for you. All right, right into tidbits. One interesting tidbit I have uh, discovered. There is a chart I found on uh, mtbdata.com. Average ages of the racers. And it goes back to 2009 to 2023. Uh, 2009, the average age was 23. And then it went up to 24 from 2011 to 2013. And then it went up, actually, no, 2011 all the way to 2017. So quite a good run there. Seven years, everybody was around average of 24. And then it went up to 25 in 2018. And then this year, it went up to 26. Now, I would almost expect that to be the opposite trend. I mean, we have so many young, I mean, coming practically from juniors. Most of them don't even uh, max out their time in the uh, U23 anymore. They just kind of race one or one year in that and go right to the elites. So... I, that's interesting. Now that I don't know, I guess that also would be offset by uh, racers hanging around longer, maybe than they used to. Um, but 2009, age of 23, now it's 26. That's only three years. But if if you look at it as a chart from 2009 to 323, you do see it rising every chunk of years. So I wonder if that'll continue with the recent trend recent within the last few years of so many juniors and under 23 riders seeming to be in a hurry to get into the elites. Um, this has nothing to do with anything, but there's also the birthdays of riders. Now, most of these riders I don't know, but Rebecca Henderson and Matthias Flickiger are both birthday uh, people today. 32 for Rebecca, 35 for Matthias. So yeah, I mean, they average age 26. There's a lot of these elites who are in their 30s now, and Matthias is already 35. So I guess that does kind of make sense. Maybe these, these racers are just sticking around longer. Better training, uh, maybe, I don't want to say better pay. I have no idea if the pay is actually increased or not, but I do find that interesting. Uh... Other tidbits, and I'm sure you've probably, if you follow road cycling at all, I follow it enough to know what's going on. Uh, you know, Tim Cook of Apple being seen with somebody from uh, Yumbo Visma talking about, are they going to sponsor a, a mega team with Sudal? And 
and that got me thinking, you know, that would be kind of a weird, a weird thing to have a company like Apple, who's practically, if not the biggest company in the world, they don't exactly need to advertise uh, to sell more iPhones. But maybe in Europe, um, they're not as doing as well. I could see uh, an Apple race team touting their Apple watches and they, their phones and their iPads and how the whole team is kind of set up around Apple. I could definitely see that. Um, be kind of cool to have, you know, have them come over into the mountain bike world. I mean, I'm not sure what would happen to if the few Yumbo Visma mountain bike racers right now, but uh, if they would kind of be Apple Yumbo Visma mountain bike team, that'd be kind of cool. So that's an interesting thing, something I would have never in a million years thought could happen. It probably won't happen. I mean, just because somebody has a picture with Tim Cook doesn't mean, you know, suddenly they're going to be making deals. But uh, an interesting rumor nonetheless. Uh, another tidbit. Uh, Baum and Egger, that's what they're called, Baum and Egger, the, the two-man team who first came onto my radar uh, at the Cape Epic two years ago when they started kicking all these pros' butts, and I never even heard of these two guys. They're younger dudes, early 20s, I believe. Um, races a team, seemed to always race as a team. And uh, they, from from Germany, they race the German uh, marathon race, and their claim to fame for that, they didn't win. In fact, I believe one of them got a flat tire and completely took them out, and the other one just had a crappy day in general and was way down. But they raced them on gravel bikes, which are against the rules in the cross-country marathon, the UCI. You cannot use drop bars, and I believe there's a minimum tire width for the marathon, which most people probably don't even realize that they uh, pay attention to that stuff. So they put flat bars, they got a big old honking stem and flat bars, and then uh, sized up to the whatever the minimum tire. They look to me about... 50 mil tires, maybe, maybe, maybe 2.1s or something. They, they don't look like normal XC tires, pretty smooth, but, uh, they're clearly gravel bikes. I mean, rigid, um, with the, you know, kind of low head tube where there's like no space above the crown. In other words, they're not, uh, frames that were designed around hundred mil or 120 mil forks. And then they just stuck a, you know, a long fork on it in place of a, of a shock. Now, these are definitely gravel road bikes with flat bars, which, um, on a related note, my my cousin has been using one of those, a specialized a Cirrus, basically a flat bar road bike, for several years after uh, having some uh, pain, neck pain issues with uh, his drop bar diverge. He swears by it. He hauls butt on that thing. Um, you do not see them very often at a performance level, if at all. I mean, it's like you go to a, watch any gravel race and there is no flat bars out there. So kudos to them for trying it. It didn't exactly, you know, it probably would have been bigger news if they actually won with these bikes. But just the same, um, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think I, I'd probably get some use out of one, but I'm so stuck in my ways, I, I probably will never pursue that. So interesting uh, tidbits. Riders age going up, um, which is odd. Apple sponsoring a team, uh, that, that's bizarre. 
and then flat bar gravel bikes for a cross-country marathon race. Hmm. Interesting, to say the least. All right, let's get going. Changing gears. More new stuff we don't really need. All right, let's do some changing gears here. Let's talk about Mavic. Um, many of you younger riders probably don't know or give two hoots about a brand of wheels um, that goes way back. We're talking 135 years of uh, being in the industry. So they've got a history. Of course, they were huge for, I believe, decades in the Tour de France as the uh, neutral support. You always saw the yellow Mavic cars, the yellow bikes on the roof, um, but they have had some rough times, let's say. Uh, they've been bought and sold, I believe, several times, and I think they're now back in some type of private hands, if not at least uh, some, a little more uh, of the kind of the original vibe. Um, but they, the reason they came up again is because they have re-entered the U.S. market. They have a a facility now in, I believe it is Vermont. Interesting place. Um, not exactly the cycling hub um, that other cities are, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, I don't, they're going to try, I guess, to, to give it a go. Now the reason I kind of pay attention to Mavic is because for 20 years of my first 20 years of mountain biking, they were my favorite wheel brand because of the Crossmax wheels. I mean, everybody before the Crossmax, the original Crossmax wheel set, um, you just had to have a, a, a wheel builder. You know, you'd pick out some spokes, pick out some hubs, and usually Mavic rims or what everybody wanted. They had some ceramic ones that you know were good for v-brakes or rim brakes and then they had some some great lightweight ones with some rivets on the eyelets oh they were great wheels and rims everybody kind of made them the standard and then the Crossmax came out and the original Crossmax, i believe it was mid to later 90s i actually have a pair sitting about 10 feet behind me hanging up the original Crossmax wheels. I, one of them was never even ridden. The other one maybe was ridden for an hour. So they're essentially new. And they were game-changing because now you could... They weren't cheap at the time. They cost as much or more than a good set of hand-built wheels. But you didn't have to hand-build them. You could just order them, get them, throw them on your bike, done. Um, they were not tubeless in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but they were all black, and that was rare. Most spokes back then were actually silver, and many rims were silver, and if you wanted them dark, they were like a dark gray, kind of a industrial, kind of weird dark gray color. Um, but they were, there, there were some black ones out there. But to get black spokes, black hubs, black wheels, with the black ceramic sides, they just look completely badass. Everybody wanted them. I had a good friend, a little older than me, who owned a bike shop, and he was he got was the first one that, you know I ever saw in person. Of course, he got as soon as they were available, he he ordered a set for himself. Um, he just gotten a new Kona uh, titanium hardtail cross country frame and custom USA paint on it, and then he 
shows up with these wheels. They, they had chrome decals on them too. They just were amazing looking. They're still amazing. To me, they're still amazing looking wheels. Um, I, if they fit, I'd put them on bikes nowadays if they kind of, you know, if I still rode 26 inch wheels. And anyway, then I went to, they upgraded them to a UST, which was their attempt at tubeless. They were not, this was pre-sealant. You did not, did not need sealant in these. You had to have special tires. And I never actually used them tubeless, but the second version had uh, flat aluminum extruded spokes versus the regular round ones uh, of the early models. I actually have two, maybe three pairs of those hanging around behind me too. Used those for many years. And and when I finally got a 29er in 2016, so yes, I was very late to that game. They had DT Swiss wheels on them, which I'm still using now. Seven years later, they're in perfect shape. And ever since that moment, DT Swiss became my uh, kind of wheel brand of choice. And I now have, I don't know, three or four between my fat bike and my uh, 29er. So Mavic just kind of, I don't know if they didn't get on board. I mean, they had cross max for 29-inch bikes. But I remember back in the day, the weights were not competitive. Uh, people were moaning about the free hubs, having issues with the free hubs, which were their own you know, design. And I don't know what happened, but I don't know if they just quit sponsoring people or they only focused on the road. But they completely fell off the radar. OEM was non-existent except for a very few French brands. Maybe I, I think I'd see them. So can they come back and uh, get back to the level that they used to be at in the mountain bike world? Not just cross-country. You got to remember uh, D-Max downhill wheels were like the standard. They're usually bright yellow, pretty ugly, but couldn't miss them coming down a mountain uh, so I mean they were everywhere road downhill cross country they were kind of they all each uh, each discipline had kind of the standard be set by Mavic for for many people and they sponsored a lot of teams too so now you know they've tried the last couple of years I've seen the cross max they're not to me the weight was always kind of one of the best part about their wheels they had a 26 inch their SLR, their top of the line, their last top of the line uh, rim brake cross country wheels. With they had like one red spoke. Uh, they're black with a little bit of gold or yellow on the hub. With red. I mean, they looked completely killer. Yes, I had a pair of those too. I ended up uh, selling them because the rims were actually a few millimeters narrower, narrower yet than the already narrow. I don't know, 17, 19 millimeter uh, inner with uh, cross-country rims and I didn't want to keep messing with my uh, v-brakes to swap wheels so I ended up selling them off but um, they were expensive they were beautiful and uh, that was it so can they come back now that the weight or that's where I was going the weights were always super light and to me you know weight weenie at heart that always was important so their cross max wheels even their carbon ones you know, we're okay in the 1400s, 1500s. Nothing, nothing great though. Nothing really groundbreaking. So I don't know. I guess with so many wheel brands out there now, there's literally every time I look, there's another carbon wheel brand that pops out of nowhere. 
And I'm assuming most of them are just rebranded, you know, Chinese or Taiwan made rims with some uh, hubs. They're not true designed from the ground up, make every every component of the wheels like uh, some brands. So do I give them a shot? I, I doubt it. You know, they're going to have to come in with something that blows people away. They do sponsor Rock Rider, of course, but, you know, these are teams that are based in France and Europe. And you do see them on a few teams, bikes, but uh, being in the U.S. with a service center, I have no idea. I don't predict that's going to going to make much of a of a movement on the radar uh, for the cross-country world. But it is interesting that they're in the U.S. again and going to give it another try. I certainly, if the price was right, would at least consider them, although I see no reason really at this point to uh, shy away from the DT Swiss. I've had nothing but good luck with them. So that's it. Mavic back. Are they back for good? Who knows? Well, uh, only time will tell. Let's get into let's, let's get into some old school stuff. I got some good stuff here. Let's go. Let's talk about the old school. All right, let's talk about the old school. I know some of you don't care about the old school, but I still find it quite fascinating. I watched a video of 2001 World Champs in Vail Village, Colorado. I uh, Vail has a kind of a special place in my heart as I have been there several times. Not to ride bikes, just to visit, and it's just such a cool little, little area uh, in the mountains in Colorado. It's just cool. I've been there three times, and just driving through mainly on the way home from, from a vacation somewhere farther west. Uh, but they, yeah, they used to actually have world class uh, mountain bike races right there, and one came across my uh, my list. Two thousand one, and two thousand one was an interesting time. You know, the 90s were over. The Olympics were five years in the past. A lot of new faces, a lot of the old guard, the Tomacs, the Overends, kind of were either completely done. Some of the big names like Tinker were still going, but it was kind of a whole new crowd. It was much more Euro-based uh, and Eurocentric uh, riders who were in the top podiums. So, you know, that's probably my... L- kind of the beginning for me of my not pay so much attention to the uh, cross-country racing as in the past. I did get a new bike in 20, I mean in 2000, so I was still into it, still doing my local thing, but I don't remember that much about the World Cup races themselves, Um, which is interesting because when I watched it, a lot of names started rushing back into my memory. Uh, up front was Roland Green from Canada. Anybody remember him? Very interesting story about him. Um, there's an article on Velo News from ages ago, years and years ago, kind of whatever happened to Roland Green. And I remember the name. He, he basically showed up out of nowhere, like a lot of these guys did back then, and just started winning everything. I think he won the World Cup overall. I believe he won the Norba World Cup, or the I mean the Norba Series overall at least once, maybe twice. He won, he won tons. He was he was a beast. Then he disappeared. I think they said three years he was on the scene. 
So just picture somebody, you know, Nino level winning, show up three years later, gone, never to be heard from again. That's kind of how it worked with him. He did get, uh, you know, flagged for some doping violation, I believe it was somewhere in Germany. During that last year, it wasn't like an EPO thing. It was more like a inhaler, like prednisone inhaler. Uh, was too high level, that type of thing. But anyway, he had some, some horrible crashes, concussions, and so he disappeared. So yeah, he's at the front. Uh, Michael Rasmussen was was at the front uh, many of the laps. I, he might have won that race. And we all know, at least I do, uh, how he kind of crashed and burned. He got in the Tour de France. He was this new king. He was winning all the winning all the climbing stages, and then uh, eventually, of course, he eventually admitted he is full-on EPO doping. And it just kind of made me remember how 2001 was, you know, the Lance era, all of these things. Uh, in fact, Roland Green even raced on the uh, U.S. Postal Team uh, on the road. So that kind of shows you, you know, that whole era was probably one of the dirtiest couple of years as far as doping you know further down uh like top five you know Cadell Evans was in there uh Christoph Sauser is two that was what that was a long time ago that was 22 years ago Christoph Sauser was in the top five or six on a few of the laps uh so his name you know not that long ago he was still going I think you know I think he might still be racing right isn't he doing the doesn't he do things like Cape Epic? And I don't know if he's fully, fully, fully out of the... Uh, pretty sure I saw, actually, yeah, this summer he's, he was sponsored by Giant or somebody. He no longer specialized, but he did have a sponsor and was still going. So that's kind of cool. But these guys were, you know, they were all a few minutes down. And Frisch Connect was in there. They were all a couple minutes down from, like, Roland Green and Rasmus. And Cashy Luke says, anybody remember? There's a name, some of you old schoolers. Uh, he was actually leading a lot of the laps. I don't know anything about him. I just remember the name. So that was, uh, it just it was a kind of a, a reminder how there really was an era, and I don't know if they weren't testing people uh, exactly back then in the mountain bike world. I, mean, I know they weren't like they do now, but I just wonder how many of those... Uh, Oh, yeah, Phil, Philippe Merhagi, he was in there, too. And he definitely was a doper, and he got caught quickly and disappeared just as quickly. So that was a very weird era. Maybe that's why I've chosen to forget it. So many of those riders, and I'm not going to say it was just the Euros. I mean, we've got people like uh, a lot of the U.S. people were having issues with that type of thing. A lot of them did also kind of come from the road. You know, it's not like uh, a lot of them were purely mountain bikers, but they definitely had some issues where road riders were coming into the mountain bike world and kind of bringing that stuff with them. So kind of too bad that that's how I remember entire decade or so of mountain bike racing. So that's it for the old school. Uh, there was some Really cool uh, footage of Park City World Cup from 91. And again, flat tires, flat tires. Everybody at some point had a flat tire. And of course, they all had to take care of their own mechanical 
needs. So they all had giant seat bags. Some uh, racers had actual half-inflated inner tubes shoved in their back pocket for the race. That was kind of funny. One thing that really stood out from that particular, it was uh, Eurovision, I believe. ESPN uh, picked it up. But they actually mentioned the hosts. Uh, Tim Blumenthal was one of them from Bicycling Magazine. Uh, they mentioned how many of the Europeans were trying to kill that self-supported rule, that it was the Euros who were leading the charge to get rid of that rule and make it more like road racing, where they could have pits and tech support, and that the U.S. racers themselves uh, stopped it, that it was the U.S. racers who did not want that. So I found that very interesting because we all know how that ended up. Uh, U.S. racers apparently didn't win uh, within a few years, uh, it was quite a few years after that, actually. I don't remember exactly when uh, the whole tech feed zone thing started, but um, interesting. Not surprising, you know, coming from many of them coming from the road world, but just kind of thought that was an interesting tidbit. Maybe that should be in tidbits. Ah, doesn't matter. It's old. Put it in old school. Let's do some quick uh, talking about the current race scene. And then we'll get out of here. Racing news and views. All right. Racing, racing. I love racing. This weekend, it's Wednesday as I record this. It uh, In two days, we'll have a short track. Two more days, we'll have a cross-country Olympic at Snowshoe in West Virginia. And then we'll head up to Mount Sinan. And it's kind of... Going to be excellent race, I believe, at Snowshoe, because from the photos I've seen, it is already wet and mucky, and I love a good mud, wet race. Will we ever get one as classic as the last one? Was that, I believe that was 2022, or is that 21? 22, with the complete torrential monsoon at Snowshoe. That was some classic uh, footage to watch. Watch these guys and ladies go up and down the mountains with that type of uh, mud and rain. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be that epic, but it already looks like a mess. People are training with long pants on and they're covered in mud, so could dry up plenty by then. I've not been checking the weather. I'd rather be surprised. But uh, I do have some great memories. I did go in 2019, as I've probably said a hundred times elsewhere. And I thought it was a blast. It was warm and dry, you know, nothing at all like like the last year. But it was such an exciting thing to be there in person. Um, I think Lars won that year. Nino, up to some debate, let him win or cut him some slack. But Nino was in second. I think Kate did really well. I believe Kate won the overall in 2019 when I was there. So just the excitement of being there and watching the podiums and seeing these people walking around and being within a few inches, if you want, to their bikes and to look at every little detail and to watch the mechanics. It was awesome. And I really wish I could be there this year. But I have a couple other things that are preventing me from going. So maybe next year if they do something in the U.S., New York, Utah, California, anywhere. I'll probably take a road trip and go see it in person. But 
it's going to be good. I, I kind of predict somebody different winning. I know uh, the Blevins and the U.S. riders, I'm sure they want to do their best. And they actually have had pretty good luck in the past. I mean, Blevins won uh, a couple things. I mean, it's just they've had great luck, so I don't know if they're going to be able to pull it off or not. Kind of get the vibe that the Euros are kind of tired, maybe. Uh, they've all been busting their butt doing world champ, uh, championship races and all these things. And some of the U.S. riders headed back home and hopefully have been kind of chilling out for a couple weeks. So I don't know. It's going to be exciting. Um, could also just be a classic case of Tom Pidcock, who I believe is going to do the last two races, which is pretty cool. He could just come out here and kick everybody's butt again, and that's the end of that. Nino will probably be in the top three, maybe, as usual. He is winning, uh, leading the uh, overall with Flickinger literally 50 points behind him or something. So Jordan Saru, you know, could be his day. It's going to be a good a good race, and I love to watch Mont-Saint-Anne. Mont-Saint-Anne, I don't know how to say it. I always like watching that one with the... Just the hills and the there's some pretty rough areas. It's going to be a great couple of weeks of racing. And we'll see what happens. I'm making no predictions. I usually don't. Um, but going to be great. Uh, as you notice, the new World Cup has a, uh, has a trophy. The UCI has re redone their trophies. Why? I have no idea. Um, from what I read, it sounds like Discovery Channel kind of had uh, their say in it. I... Even though it's a Discovery Channel kind of GCN uh, type of a situation, I would think the UCI would be in charge of the trophies, the design. They've had like a glass kind of a trophy thing forever. And now it's like a uh, kind of a copper gold long kind of a tall thing. Granted, you can grip it with one hand and throw it around, so that's kind of cool. But I don't know. It doesn't look very impressive to me. I like the old ones. Then again, I don't like change, so there you go. So you get a new trophy, you'll probably be seeing. I'm assuming they're starting that right now and not next year. I believe they've already handed one out in the Marathon Worlds at, or the Gravel, something. They, they handed one out to somebody. And so you'll probably be seeing that now on the podiums, these uh, kind of tall, skinny things. And what else? Um, the test event is come and gone for the Olympics. And, of course, heaven forbid they throw some cameras up and show that thing. I mean, I know I would have loved to watch it. Turns out, sounds like many of the racers kind of didn't put much effort into it. I mean, uh, it's hard to tell at those events. You know, some people, like Nino, clearly, I think he got ended up in third, but he was right at the right up there with uh, Anton Cooper and Koreski. So th those three obviously were going for it. And Loana, you know, won fairly easily. But then you got your, uh, you know, a lot of the other ones were just like in the 20s and 30s. I think Pidcock was back in the 20, mid-20s. Vanderpool was even farther back. So it sounds like a lot of them kind of, I don't know if they purposely decided to sandbag it and just kind of use it as a rough, get the vibe for this race course and not try to win it. Because we all know, you know, Yolanda won the last Olympics and then she went out and won the actual Olympic race. So 
be more fun to read into the results, but I don't think, honestly, I don't think it seems to matter at all. There's no money, there is no fame, there's no TV coverage, so I think a lot of them just kind of bailed on it. That's okay. It's still interesting to see uh, Koretsky uh, is firing on all cylinders. I'd say he's probably the guy that's going to win the next couple races or certainly be in the top three because he seems to be on fire now. He's got everything rolling along again. So it could be a specialized uh, type of a weekend coming up in snowshoe between the women and the men. Haley Batten and and Blevins and Koretsky got a lot of of fast racers on that team that kind of all pointing to being in good shape. So we'll see how that goes. What else? Uh, one other thing, I, Lauren Mollengraf, she's a very young, I think she's a junior still. I mean, she's not even an under 23. She signed with three pro teams, road, cross, and mountain bike, all three different teams. And that just seems insane to me that this is what it's come down to. These young racers are going to not pick a discipline and just kind of wing it. But to have three teams for three different, uh, I don't know, that sounds kind of like a nightmare to try and keep track of all that. Three different bike vendors, three different, I think she has three different bike vendors. I can't, it seems I also, I should probably look that up. Seems like maybe there was some connection between the three teams. Um, but anyway, so I guess we're going to be seeing more of that. Uh, everybody's looking for the next Pidcock or the next Vanderpool to see who can come in and just kind of flip around and win everything. I kind of like the Mona approach. Mona Mitterwall said, I'm going all in. I'm good. I'm talented. I'm going to be an XC racer, and that's it. I'll dabble in the marathon just for something different, but no cross, no road teams. I don't know. I'm old school. I just think that is going to eventually maybe go away and there, people are going to kind of go back to picking one and putting their all their effort into it. But we'll see. Free country, free free bike bike country, I guess you could say. As long as they can get sponsors and do it, should be uh, entertaining. You can kind of see the same names across the... Uh, Three different disciplines. It's kind of fun. So that's it. Not much more to go on until after this weekend. Uh, we'll see how this goes at uh, Snowshoe. And I think we went long enough. I got some hot or nots. Uh, I'll save those till next week. And that's it. Have a good, uh, good rides. I have a race coming up. Uh, kind of my main goal the entire year. A race up in uh, southern Wisconsin. It's not really, it's it's more like a festival vibe. I've been trying for, um, this will be the 30th year I've been going to this. I think I missed two years, one for a childbirth and one for a honeymoon. Other than that, I've had every one of them. Keep trying, keep trying to to do better and better each year. I, I'm, I don't want to admit that I'm as old as I am. I'm now 50. 55 years old going into this, so I was, what, 25 when I started. The best I've gotten, I believe, is 7th or ninth place. I just want to get on the podium someday, and I just think maybe I'm, I've am i ran out of time. These are not age group races. These are 
just overall distance type races. So I'm racing against 18-year-olds and 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds. And I think maybe I just kind of ran out of time to uh, make my mark on this one. But that's kind of cool. I'll give it a go. I'll keep going as long as I can. And that's it. I'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the snowshoe races. Thank you ever so much for listening to Short Travel Magazine. 